0: Well, good morning, Village. It's um, good to have you with us online this morning. We're continuing in our our uh, series on kingdom culture, looking at the kingdom of God and and what the culture of God's kingdom is um, as we pray for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, we planned this series a while back, even when we were still in our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, And we, uh, in God's providence, are in... Probably the most famous, um, the most quoted um, of, of all Jesus' parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 this morning. And in God's providence, we're preaching this parable this morning really against the backdrop of the events that we've seen um, in the news this week, sparked by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in the United States. And what started off as local protests then kind of went nationwide across America and really global. We've even had protests this week uh, in here in Belfast. And um, there's protests because we are able to see that there's something inherently broken in the systems of our world, particularly around law enforcement and criminal justice and things like that, um, that are putting people of color, black people in particularly, uh, in, in situations where they're dying, unlawfully, um, and disproportionately. And so here we find ourselves, and we're gonna look at some of these issues this morning because the text kind of demands that we do look at that, but God in his providence has us here this morning. It's been uh, a, 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 a heavy week um, in my own heart, just preparing for this, talking to friends back in the United States, uh, both black and white friends, and um, and just watching uh, the news unfold. Um, and so I carry with me broken uh, broken heaviness in my heart this week preparing for this. Um, I've been sad uh, this week. Um, I've, I've been tearful at times, um, but I'm also uh, very hopeful um, because we come with the message of the kingdom of God. Uh, and so let's um, deal uh, with our, our text this morning. Here we have um, uh, someone who asked Jesus a question. One of the most, probably the most important question that we could ask, and probably the most important qu- question we could ask, and here we have a lawyer who asks Jesus, "What must I do, teacher? What must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus answers him with a question, which is uh, what Jesus often does in, in good rabbi kind of tradition. He answers a question with another question, and he asks him, "Well, what does your Bible say? Essentially, um, what does the Scripture say? How do you read your Bible?" And um, I, I think that's just even important to stop there because uh, often what, what people want to do is pit Jesus against the scripture, uh, particularly Jesus against the Old Testament. And Jesus will have none of that. Jesus will come back to the scripture over and over and over and over again. Um, and if we'll listen to Jesus, he'll point out that the scripture really is one unified story, one unified message. And so to pit the son of God against the word of God, um, is a mistake of the highest order, and so the answer that he comes back is from the scripture, um, and he quotes the Shema back in, in Deuteronomy and other places, and and he says to Jesus, "Well, the scripture says that we're to love the, the Lord our God with everything we have, with all of our soul, with all of our might, with all of our strength, and that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves." And Jesus says. You've answered correctly. You've, you've read your scripture um, correctly. Do those things and you'll live. You'll have an, e- an eternal life. Um, but the context of this is is uh, incredible, isn't it? Um, because it goes on to say, if we if we if we notice at the beginning, the lawyer isn't asking the question to get the answer. He's asking this question to put Jesus to a test. He's trying to trap Jesus. He wants Jesus to give a different kind of answer uh, so that they can point to Jesus' mistakes and entrap him in that way. But Jesus uh, answers him the right way. And he answers him um, in a way that, that is uh, consistent with Jesus' teachings. If you remember even in, in, um, when we looked at the, the Sermon on the Mount series, um, Jesus said the same thing. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In Mark 12, he would say there's no greater command than this, that we're to love the Lord and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's no greater commandment than those. And Jesus then rightfully says, This is the way of Christ. This is the way to eternal life. But the lawyer then says, Who has my neighbor? who is my neighbor that I'm meant to love? And notice the context. He's desiring to justify himself. So much of our unchristlikeness stems from this. We're trying to justify myself. His question is, well, who is my neighbor? But really his question um, is, is, well, who isn't my neighbor? Who, Jesus, do I get to be off the hook in caring about? Who is it that I don't have to worry about? Who is it that I don't have to love? What's the bare minimum on neighborliness that I can get away with? Where can I draw the line in extending love to other people, Jesus? And this is the mistake that we all make. We all, if we're really honest with ourselves, um, we often are happy uh, to show love and compassion Uh, to people that we like or people that are like us, Uh, but whenever it's people that are different from us um, or people that we might not um, naturally like, we start to ask the same question too, don't we? I think if we're honest with ourselves, who is my neighbor? Who am I responsible for? Am I my brother's keeper? Um, I've I've heard it quoted before. I, I, I can't remember who said it now, but um, but they said, if, if, you're, if the God that you worship loves all the same people that you love and hates all the same people that you hate, then you're worshiping a God of your own making. This is not the God that we find in the Bible. Jesus then answers his question of who is his neighbor um, with this story, with this parable that we see here um, in the text. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, the half dead man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you back when I come. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus asks. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Who proved to be a neighbor? That's the question that's being asked. Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, which one of these people proved to be the neighbor? The priest and the Levite. These can be really taken as, as one kind of figure uh, in, the, in, this, uh, in this parable. The religious kind of people. Or was it the Samaritan? And, and he says, it was the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. Um, the Samaritans from the Jewish perspective were, uh, were, their, were their enemies. They were, they were looked down upon. They were, they were these kind of half-breeds of, of Jews and, and, and Samar- and from Samaria. And Jesus says, no, you are to go and do likewise. You are to go and show compassion and mercy even to those people that might be your enemy. And that's our first point that I want us to see. The believers, those of us that claim to be followers of Jesus, need to actually follow Jesus in this way, to show compassion and mercy to all in need. Um, and this is because Jesus models this for us so well. I want us to think about this word, compassion and mercy. Matthew nine thirty six. when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He sees those that are being harassed. They're helpless. They don't have a leader. And he has compassion on them. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Jesus has compassion on these crowds. Those that were sick, those that were diseased, he comes with compassion and his compassion motivates him to heal them. Matthew 15, 32, then Jesus called his disciples to them and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and they've run out of food. They have nothing to eat and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus sees those that are hungry, those that are without food and he's moved with compassion. He doesn't want them to go away hungry lest they faint, lest lest their health fails. And he provides a great meal for them. Matthew 6, 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. His compassion leads them um, to, to teaching them the truths of the scripture. In Luke 7, he comes across a woman and her son has died. And when the, lost, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched, he touched him. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus' compassion for a woman who is, who is weeping, who is, who is grieved because of her son, who has passed away, overcomes death and raises him to life. This is the way of Jesus. A way of seeing the poor, a way of seeing the needy, of those that are dying, those are without a leader, those are without a shepherd, and he is moved with compassion. And we as Christ followers should be the most compassionate. We should be the most merciful of all people. But often we aren't. Often we become like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and our heart becomes religious, it becomes hardened. Often it is Christians who uh, statistically demand the harshest punishments for, cri- for criminals. In the United States and, and even in, in, in Europe, uh, there, the criminal justice system can over-criminalize uh, really certain groups of people. Certain groups of people, particularly around race, become disadvantaged because of the criminal system itself, criminalizing them overly. And it's, A lot of times, white evangelicals uh, who are demanding the harshest of those punishments. That's not to say that we shouldn't have laws. That's not to say there shouldn't be morality. But it's surprising that it is the Christians who are the least to offer forgiveness, oftentimes, that are least compassionate. The Jews would have found it hard to be compassionate to a Samaritan... Um, or, or, and to see the Samaritan be the one who is, is compassionate, the hero of the story, uh, would have really touched a nerve with them. And so it begs the question for us, for you and I, who do you find it difficult to show compassion to? Who is it that you struggle to show compassion to? It's usually not somebody who's like us or that we like. It's usually people that are different from us that we find difficult to show compassion to. Maybe it's somebody that is racially different than you. Maybe you find it difficult to find compassion for people of different races. Maybe it's somebody that's politically different from you, has political, a political uh, worldview that's different from yours. Maybe it's someone who's religiously different from you. Maybe it's somebody who's educationally different than you. Economically d- different from you. Geographically different from you. Who is it that you are most likely to struggle showing compassion to? And this parable of Jesus' teaching is going to say that as a follower of Jesus, the kingdom of God, we are to show compassion to all. We are to show compassion to all those who are needy, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their political persuasion. They deserve our compassion. They deserve our mercy. Why? Because we've been shown those those same things in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, there's nothing that any of us deserved except for the actual judgment and justice of God, that we deserve punishment, we deserve hell. But because of Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. Jesus extends mercy to us. Jesus takes on the punishment that you and I deserved. He offers forgiveness and compassion and mercy, a way for you and I then to be reconciled to the Father through him, not because justice was overlooked, but because justice was enacted on Christ instead of you and I. Jesus comes and he lavishes his grace. He lavishes his mercy by his own shedding of his own blood, by going to the cross for you and I. We, as Christians, are recipients of that grace and mercy. We are recipients of that compassion. We then are called to be like Jesus, to be merciful as he is merciful. How dare we, just like the priest and the Levite, turn and walk on the other side of the road? And that brings us really to our second point. We see the priest and the Levite, people who should have known better, people who are literally serving in the temple who are going about religious duties, being mediators between the people and God. And we see here that religion often gets in the way of us demonstrating God's compassion for other people. And all of us in Northern Ireland said, amen. We know our heritage, our land, still bears the scars of religion getting in the way of God's people being able to demonstrate compassion and mercy. Now, these priests um, more than likely lived in Jericho. Um, there were more priests uh, in the temple. They didn't all live in, in Jerusalem. Um, and so this is about 15 miles away. And the road between the two cities was treacherous. Um, it descended uh, about 4,000 feet in those 15 miles from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem down to Jericho. Um, and we're told that they're leaving. They're, they're they're traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. So they've done they've 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 done their priestly duties uh, for, for that time um, for their shift, whatever that worked out to be. And they're going down, and they come across this man. Um, he's been stripped. He's been left um, for dead. Maybe he's not moving. They think he might be dead. And instead of going to see if he's okay, to see what his needs are. Um, they cross on the other side of the road and they pass him by. Now, maybe they didn't want to defile themselves. If they thought he was dead as priests, if they were to touch a, a, a dead person, a dead body, uh, they would have had to go through a, a week long purification process. But we're told they're leaving the temple. They've already done their religious duties, their ceremonial duties for the time. And so they walk away. They leave him. Religion often gets in the way of us showing compassion and mercy. And sometimes it might not be um, on purpose, right? Sometimes we even as as ministers of the gospel, um, we can complicate things so much that we make it hard and difficult for people to even be around people um, that need our help. We don't see them, (laughs) It's not that we see them and we choose to ignore. Sometimes we don't even see them because we're never around them. One of our philosophies of ministry here at Village is to not cram our schedule full of so many activities with church that we never have time to be around people uh, who aren't a part of the kingdom of God, to be around non-Christians. We want um, to give enough time in our lives, enough margin and space that's not occupied constantly by religious activities so that we can be around non-Christians so that we can um, show them what the kingdom of God is like. That's why we have missional communities as well. Um, We're going to be making some changes to our missional communities. We'll talk about that uh, at our members meeting, and and we're thinking through some of those things right now. Um, As our church, particularly in East, has grown a lot, um, uh, some some of the missional community things need to shift and change so that we're able to do this better, so that we're able to be in community with each other, but also draw in um, those who don't know Jesus yet. And so this is an indictment on the priest, on a Levite, for their religious rituals. Um, for them, they saw their religious rituals more valuable than a human life. Woe unto us if our religious practices, if our religious um, activity causes us to lose sight of human life and human value. And this is what happened. They lost sight of the big picture. Um, and this is, happens all the time. It happened all the time in the scriptures. We go through the Old Testament. Um, we see God's judgment on Israel for things like turning aside from the afflicted, oppressing the poor, turning aside from the needy. Um, we see this in the book of Amos. All of those things are discussed. And then this is what the Lord says to his people. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-folding stream. Proverbs one three says the same thing. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. I wonder what the Lord would say to the church today. As we gather together, we give our offerings to the Lord, we sing our songs in praise and worship, we sit under the right teaching of God's word, we're gospel-centered folks, able to pat ourselves on the back For having all of our theological ducks in a row. But if we're not about the cause of righteousness, if we're not about the cause of justice, God says, I am tired of all of that. I don't want to hear your songs. I'm not going to receive your offerings, your sacrifices. Jesus' half-brother James would put it this way, your faith without works is dead. It's meaningless. How can we say that we follow Jesus, compassionate and merciful, if we ourselves are not those kind of people? If we let ethnicity, race, religion, or any other sort of category that we use to separate one group of humans from another group of humans, if we, cause that, if, if we let those things affect our decision to get involved, and we become as hypocritical as the Levite and the priest in this story. This idea of the priest and the Levite um, was a trope of Jesus' time, kind of like how we have these jokes, you know, uh, a priest, uh, uh, a Levite, and a rabbi walk into a bar sort of a thing. And so this this kind of construct of a story was familiar in Jesus' time. And so there was probably a part of the people who were listening who were kind of anti-cleric, anti-priesthood sort of people um, who would have expected the the Levite and the priest Uh, to be rejected as the heroes, and then a hero offered up. But the hero that they would have expected in this kind of trope of the time would have been an ordinary Jew. Uh, The priest, the Levite, they failed to act, but this ordinary, just kind of normal, blue-collar Jew, Israelite, they'd be the hero of the story. But that's not the hero that Jesus offers up. That's not the person who Jesus says that we are to model our behavior after. It was a Samaritan. And to his Jewish audience, this would have been scandalous at the time. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were seen as Gentiles, even though they were half Jew. These were the descendants of, of their ancestors. And so this brings us to our third point. A third point that we would have seen from the perspective of the man lying in the ditch. That even my enemy is my neighbor. Even my enemy is my neighbor. This is scandalous for Jesus to offer up this. Jesus, what are you saying? We, we're your people. We're, we're the promised ones. We're, we're the chosen ones. The nation of Israel. You know, Abraham, all the descendants that you've promised. This is us. Jesus, come and enact your rule and reign as a Messiah. Let's overthrow these Gentiles' oppressors. Purify your people. But that's not the story of the scripture. They had missed out all the way from the beginning in Genesis. Even when God is choosing Abraham, what does he say? He says, all the families or all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Over and over the refrain in the Psalms, let the nations be glad. Be glad about what? Be glad that the compassion and mercy and justice of God extends to them as well. What does Jesus himself say in John 10, 16? He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's referring to the Gentiles. And he says, "Um, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus' extension, his invitation of mercy and grace and forgiveness extends to all. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's you and me, by the way, that's all non-Jewish people. Um, He says, remember that you, one time Gentiles, you were in the flesh. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's you and I. We were strangers to the covenant promises of God that he had made through Israel We were without any hope without God in the world, but, what a great word in the scriptures, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What was that dividing wall? The dividing wall of hostility was between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was a racial wall of hostility. It was an ethnic wall of hostility. Between clean and unclean, people of the covenant and people that weren't part of the covenant. But Jesus comes to establish a new covenant, breaking down himself the walls of hostility. He says he, he did that, breaking down the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two So by making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we, we both have access to the one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple of the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the hope of the gospel, there isn't Jew or Gentile. There isn't male nor female. There aren't all these categories that we have to separate ourselves when it comes to our access to God. There's one flock. There's one shepherd. There's one church being built together. And it is Christ who himself has come and he's broken down the walls of hostility This is the message of the scripture. We see it culminate in the book of Revelation at the end where John has this great vision of this great multitude from every nation. He says, After this I looked up and behold, a great multitude that that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the whole message of the sweep of Scripture. That God has always wanted uh, people from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, from every ethnicity to be a part of his family. And he offers that to us through Christ. Yes, that message came through the Jews, but it didn't stop there. Jesus comes and he establishes new covenant that is available to all. Those who are not yet Christians among our who, who we might perceive to be our enemies those who are not Christians yet who we might perceive to be our enemies are no more lost than we used to be are no more lost than we were before we came to Christ God calls us to bring the gospel to them both in proclamation and in demonstration and that demonstration includes the compassion the mercy, the justice, and peace, just like Jesus brought, just like Jesus is teaching today in this parable. Those that are of other races, of other nationalities, of other politics, that are Christians, are just as a significant part of the body of Christ as we are, as people like us. They're just as significant as part of the body of Christ. So racism, prejudice, Whether that be racial prejudice, political prejudice, socioeconomic, whatever our prejudice is, has no place in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is an anti racist culture, it's an anti prejudice culture. Because all of us will be part of the body of Christ in the end. Um, If you don't like people of other races, you're really not going to enjoy heaven. See it if you make it there. <laughs> Racism is, is no place in the kingdom. And if it did, then Paul would have never gone to evangelize Europe. He would have never went to, to the Gentiles. It would have just stayed within Jerusalem, within the Jewish community. But he doesn't. We get the book of Acts and most of the New Testament written to the Gentiles, his missionary journey to the Gentiles, We've said already that religion often gets in the way. But unfortunately for many so-called Christians, politics becomes our religion. Politics gets conflated with our religion, especially in the West. And it gets in the way as well. And so often to be Christian is to be of a political party. In the United States, at this cultural kind of moment in time, it might be seen to be, if you're a Christian, then, then you have to be a Republican. Because it's those people that are against the things that Christians are against. They're against abortion. They're against homosexual marriage. They're against whatever it may be. These other kind of culture wars around sexuality. But surely there are other things that other political parties would also have that Christians might be interested in. Criminal justice, racial oppression, caring for the poor in our own kind of country. It's often seen if you're a a true Christian, if you're an evangelical, then you must align with the orange side of politics instead of the green side of politics. But let's be clear the kingdom of God isn't any kind of color, it's not red or green if you're in the U.S., it's not orange or green here. Red or blue, it's not Democrat, Republican, it's not DUP, it's not Sinn it's none of these things. The, D, the, the, the kingdom of God supersedes, it transcends earthly politics. It's not a civic kingdom, it is a spiritual kingdom. And one day will be an earthly kingdom when Jesus comes again. And that's not to say that we can't have political opinions. That's not to say, I, I would never tell you who or how to vote. We have to vote our conscience, but it needs to be informed by the scripture. And that might mean at one time we have to vote one way, another time a different kind of way. And these are things that we can talk about, we can think about, but I want us to think about them the right way, biblically, in a kingdom perspective. Because when politics gets conflated with our religion, We become much more entrenched, much more embattled because of it. Politicians become our pastors and priests. Government is our church. The state becomes our God. When we as Christians align wholly with any political party, we lack the spiritual and prophetic credibility to stand as an alternative kingdom that leads us to human flourishing. Let me say that again. When we as Christians align wholly with any political party, we lack the spiritual and prophetic credibility to stand as an alternative kingdom. People just assume then that a Christian ethic is the same as whatever your political party ethic is. And that's just not true, whatever political party you belong to. We get embattled in these culture wars then. right? We see this get played out over and over again. And the church gets suckered into playing these culture war games. But the culture war produces a war culture within the church. It produces a war culture within our heart. Now we, within, just as, as within war, we have enemies and enemies must be defeated. Enemies must be dominated. Enemies must be put down. This is not the way of Christ. Greg Forster said this week, I read a quote of his, it says, you can defeat what you hate, but you can only change what you love. You can only change what you love. And this is what Christians are to be about. First of all, the change that we need to see within ourselves, but also the change that we want to see in society, the change we want to see in other peoples comes through our love and compassion and mercy for them. This is the way of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You say, well, what if we lose this battle or culture war? Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But none of us want to sign up for that in a culture war. I don't want to be reviled. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want people saying things falsely against me. I want to stand my ground. I want to push back. I want to dominate and defeat my enemies. Jesus says that's not the way of the kingdom. That's not the kingdom culture. Surely we should be trying to reach and change people in the same way that we have been reached and changed by the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. Jesus goes on in that same Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? Is this not What we're talking about? Love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? Who is it that I have to love? And who isn't my neighbor so that I can hate them because they're clearly my enemy? Culture war. But Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you might be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Do you hear what he's saying? How are you gonna be distinctly Christian? How will people know you're part of the kingdom of God? If you just treat people the way that everybody else does, the way that your so-called sinners and enemies and tax collectors and Gentiles do, that's what they do. They take care of their own. What makes us distinctively different as those that are followers of Jesus is we love our enemies, our so called enemies. The people who we're supposed to hate, we love, we pray for them. So much so that Paul would say in Galatians 5 For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's astounding. I have to confess that I think oftentimes we as Christians, we want the whole law fulfilled without that. How do I fulfill the law without loving my neighbor as myself? Which is exactly what the lawyer's asking Jesus to justify himself. How can I justify myself without actually obeying the law? Without actually doing what the whole law is summed up, the whole law of the prophets and loving my neighbor as myself? He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not also consumed by one another. Too often our Christian witness has been consumed by us biting and devouring our so-called enemies. Instead of listening, reaching out, extending compassion and mercy, and, and righteousness is in there. This isn't a call to abandon any kind of truth, but it's a call to listen to where we might need to, to be corrected ourselves. Jesus, in, in, the, in all of the Gospels, only one time tells us what his heart is like. Only once. His invitation take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls this word lowly essentially means accessible I'm accessible I'm gentle and I'm accessible it doesn't sound like the captain the general leading any kind of culture war There's not a a war culture within the kingdom of God. It is one of peacemakers, of compassion, of mercy. We follow our Lord, who is gentle and lowly in heart. We don't have a a war culture in the kingdom, but a culture of peace. A culture of peace. Um, My friend Sean Cross, he's an Acts 29 pastor, black, African American. Acts 29 pastor in, in Washington, D.C., um, uh, posted some thoughts around this idea of, of a kingdom of peace this week. Um, and he makes the point, uh, that the Greek word that's used in the New Testament that we translate, translate into peace more fully means, uh, more fully means wholeness, um, which is really similar to the Hebrew word that we use for peace, which is shalom, uh, which means, uh, a, a whole, um, and very early in the scripture, this word is tied to covenant. Peace is, is, is not merely an absence of war. It's not merely an, an absence of unrest, but rather it's a demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. He points out that another way to talk about peace then in the Bible is that it's a product of something. It's actually the end result of something else. Peace comes at the end of something else. And so how do we get that peace? How do we get to that? How do we come through that? What comes before that? And in the scripture, he's, he, he reminds us, shalom is connected primarily to three concepts, to truth, to righteousness, and justice. Um, I've already read several of those passages out, passages out from the Old Testament, Zechariah 8, again, Psalm 85 again, Isaiah 32, all imply that peace has a content, It's made up of truth, of righteousness, of justice. And truth, especially in the prophets, is this thus saith the Lord. It's the the correct assessment of where a person or where a people or a nation is in light of how God has said things ought to be. That's the truth. How God says things ought to be and us then actually enacting that. It's It's a correct assessment of where we are in relation to that. Righteousness. Then is this intact relationship with God that comes through faith, believing that what God says to be is true, and a repentance, right? Us reorienting our life and alignment with that truth. Justice then is the ordering of society in ways that are equitable and in alignment with the aforementioned truth. You see how all of these things start to build together. They build together and they culminate in shalom, personal shalom. But also societal shalom. He says to put it together a bit more plainly, the Bible teaches that in order to have peace, you must have truth, personal righteousness, and social justice. Or to put it even more plainly, in the language we hear today, no justice, no peace. Justice reflects God's heart. This isn't a political statement. This is a kingdom statement. It's a it's a statement about the kingdom, uh, the culture that should be in the kingdom of God. It defines God's heart. As a pastor, especially in a place like Northern Ireland, um, you have decisions that you have to make. Right? We have decisions I have to make every every week about what I what I stand here in this pulpit and I say and that I teach. Um, we want to teach what the Bible says. Um, I, I've, I am not a political guy. Um, I'm, I'm a, I strive to be a gospel guy. Um, I, I'm not here to be a politician of any kind. I'm called to be a pastor. My job as a pastor then is to, is to take this book, God's Word, to open it up and as best we can interpret the truth that's there for us to live. But there are times when What seems political in our world or what you could be accused of being political as isn't political at all. It's biblical. We're talking about ideas of justice. And so you've heard me talk about the injustice of killing the unborn in abortion. That's not a political point of view. How we think about how God has created us as men and women, how he defines the institution of marriage that he actually created. That's not a political point of view. Racial equality, that all people are created equal, that all people are of value before God, of equal value, and should be treated as such with compassion and mercy Things like slavery and, and institutions that have been built on slavery. And that's part of our country, our, our country here in the, in the UK as well. We were pretty good at slavery. Windrush, all, all the black uh, people that live here that came from uh, the West Indies and different places like that. This isn't a, a political statement at all. These are issues of social justice, but they're issues of biblical justice. This is what Paul recognizes as well, right? In Galatians chapter two, 11 to 14, as we start to close, Paul comes and he comes back to Jerusalem and he opposes Peter. And this is what he says, Galatians 2, 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came, um, um, for before certain men came from J- J- James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And again, that's a big deal for, for Jews. Eating with the Gentiles, Gentiles ate quote unquote unclean food, and just to eat with a Gentile, have table fellowship with them um, uh, for non Christian Jews, obviously was a, was a big no no. There were the circumcised and the uncircumcised. But when these men, when these Jews then came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So out of fear of these Jews, he withdrew from the Gentiles. He started treating uh, this this racial class differently because of fear from 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 his peers. And the rest of the Jews then acted hypocritically along with him. So now it's not just his actions, but he's having an effect on other people. He said, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Our racial actions, the way that we act hypocritically, whether it's race or whatever else, impacts other people as well. We influence other people as well. And so what does Paul do? He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said... To Peter before all of them. If though you a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles then to live as a Jew? But what does he say? He says he saw that their conduct was not in step with the Jewish political party. No, that's not what he says. It wasn't in step with the gospel. These things are gospel issues. How we treat people of all, of all kinds, but especially in, in racial categories, in sectarian categories. And it's very, it'd be very easy of us to be kind of smug and, and, and from Europe look over to America and go, oh, look at all the race problems that they have there. But we have those problems here in Northern Ireland. It's not just sectarianism. Maybe some of you saw some of these statistics. Uh, on social media this week, there's been more racist incidences reported to police than our kind of traditional religious sectarianism. Racism is on the rise, and whilst in a lot of ways sectarian, at least, activities that get reported to the police um, might be on the plateau or decline, racism is is replacing that in many ways, and that's because racism and sectarianism are twins. They're 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 the same thing. of people in Northern Ireland said they wouldn't want a Muslim as a friend. Wouldn't want a Muslim as a friend. We've uh, encountered uh, that ourselves. Uh, We actually have um, uh, a family, um, a Muslim family, that uh, came here from Somalia. And their eldest daughter, my eldest daughter, are really good friends. And um, they've known each other since uh, primary school. And uh, my wife had to get involved because her uh, they, they were being harassed at the school gate by the other mums and things like that as they were going. Um, she couldn't even go on the P7 trip because of some of those issues. And so my wife got involved and went to the principal and they had to try to sort that out to try to advocate on their behalf. And nearly half of people in Northern Ireland wouldn't want a Muslim as a friend. And we can have religious beliefs, Believe me, I don't think Islam teaches the way, the way to God at all. But those are people that God has created. Those are people, there will be Somalians at the throne of God in Revelation. There will be people from Muslim countries. 25% of people in Northern Ireland said they didn't want to work with a racial minority, wouldn't want them as a work colleague. In 2009, 100 Romanians had to flee Their homes because of attacks here in Northern Ireland. So we see in the scripture that justice is a prerequisite to peace. These are gospel issues. Paul recognizes this kind of racial prejudice within Peter, Barnabas, some of the other disciples, and he calls it out and he says, You're not walking in step with the gospel. Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility. In Christ, now we are united to Christ. There is no Jew and Gentile. There is no white and black. There is no Caucasian and Asian. In Christ, we are all one. We have peace with God only to the extent that the justice demanded By our sin has been satisfied in Christ Himself. He took the punishment on our behalf, and that's affirmed in our repentance. Do you see how justice comes before our peace? We just don't get peace with God because He he just says, "Eh, You know what, I see your sin there. I see your rebellion. Eh, No big deal. No. Our sin is so offensive that it must be dealt with, it must be punished. Otherwise, we would call God unfair. Justice is not being meted out equally. And so he does. And yet in his mercy and his compassion, that justice doesn't fall on you and I if we turn to Christ. Jesus absorbs all that wrath of God on our behalf, on the cross. Our sin isn't just overlooked. It's paid for. It's dealt with. Justice is enacted upon Christ on our behalf, he is our substitute. And because then justice has been enacted, we can have peace. We can have peace with God. And that's important for us to, to humbly remember. We were the unjust ones. It's just that our, our sin has been dealt with, it's been covered by the blood of Jesus, by his compassion, and by his mercy. So it's not just, "Oh, look at these crazy racists. It's you and I that needed the justice of God. It's not just them's, it's us and. Christ enacts justice on all of our sin, and because of that, He offers us peace, reconciliation to God, and then reconciliation to one another. He has broken down the walls of hostility. He himself has become our peace, justice and peace, our first and foremost gospel issues, issues of the kingdom. And so don't misconstrue these. Don't get caught up in this culture war and these political embattlements. Think biblically, Christian. Think through a, a, a biblical worldview. Get your Bible out. And in his mercy... Jesus joyfully adopts us into his family. We're no longer his enemies. We are his brother, his sister. We are united together in him. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, that's the message that's extended to you in hope. Look to God, look to Christ, not to priests and clerics and and Levites, not not to imperfect people um, like me, not to people who claim to be Christians, presidents holding Bibles for political stunts. There's lots of hypocrites, myself included. We all mess up. There are all times where we walk not in step with the gospel. And so my encouragement to you, if you're not a believer, is to look to Jesus, the one who will never fail you, the one who always extends compassion and mercy and forgiveness, the one who has enacted justice perfectly, And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, let's do that. Let's actually follow Jesus. That means working for justice. Justice that leads to peace. And that might mean the way we vote. It might impact how we get involved in politics and do our civic duty. That's all part of how we are able to enact justice, for sure. But it also starts in our own hearts. And it it also means that we don't lose sight of the big picture like the priests and the Levites getting embattled, losing sight because of our own kind of religious duties and whatever kind of religious constructs that we've created. We work for justice, we work for peace. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are those that have compassion. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is the culture of the kingdom. And so when we pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying for justice now as it is in heaven. We're praying that God's rule and his reign would come now. And that comes through us as people, through the church. So let's be faithful. Let's be faithful Um, to the gospel. Let's be faithful to justice and mercy as defined by God in his word and not allow political uh, parties to to define what is right and what is wrong, that we stand for truth, that we stand for righteousness, that that starts with our own personal uh, accountability um, for us within the church, that the church is a place where it doesn't matter what socioeconomic background you come from, doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter the, the level of education that you have, it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. That this is level ground that we all come, that we all come to the cross of Jesus. And it's there we receive his grace and his mercy. And it's there that we look forward to that day where he will return again, where justice will roll upon the earth like an unstoppable river, where there'll be no more need for police, there'll be no need for courts and prisons and justice systems anymore, and where every tribe, where every tongue, where every language spoken, where every shade of skin will worship the Lord, declaring worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we can have none of these things apart from Christ. Apart from you, um, we um, are are selfish. We we look to our own interests only. Father, we need your spirit to empower us. We need your word to illuminate our our minds uh, to what is right, what is righteousness, what is this truth that we have. How can we be people who seek justice? How can we be peacemakers? Father, we know that starts in our own heart. It starts by us looking in the mirror. Father, we can all be like Peter. <coughs> and we get out of line, out of step with the gospel. Um, Father, we pray um, that your word this morning would be a call back to that as, as, as the Apostle Paul called him to walk back in alignment with the gospel. Father, I confess that it's so easy, even in studying for this week, to think of other examples outside of my own heart of people who are unjust, people who are oppressed, uh, who are doing the oppressing, people who are acting hypocritically. So easy to think of others and to ignore my own life and ignore my own heart and not do the hard work of looking at my own, my own shortcomings, my own hypocrisy, my own prejudices. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the courage, the strength, the conviction uh, to do that. Father, that we wouldn't be hypocritical in that, that we ourselves would repent where we need to repent, that we would ask for forgiveness where we need to ask for forgiveness, that you would show us where where we are not walking in step with the gospel, so that we then may be agents of, ambassadors of, of your compassion and, and mercy. Father, I, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to untangle our, our earthly, civic, political persuasions um, from what is the, the truth of the gospel, the truth of, of the story, the unified story of scripture. Father, many times we conflate those things together and it just diminishes our prophetic witness in the world. It just drains us of all credibility. Father, where we need to be involved in politics. Um, Father, we confess that as Christians, we we often and rightfully so feel politically homeless. Um, Father, I pray that that wouldn't feel like a burden to us, but that would feel like liberty to us um, to engage in politics in a different kind of way, in a distinctive kind of way as Christians. Father, this is a a cultural moment and opportunity that we have to be that prophetic voice once again. Father, give us the courage to to be that prophetic voice, not just in times where it is um, where we'll be patted on the back by our friends, where it's easy to kind of post those kind of critiques on social media, but Father, even when it isn't, when it's difficult, when the people that uh, aren't of the same uh, opinions would criticize us. Father, may your opinion um, be the most important to us. May it guide us and direct us in all that we say and do. May all that we say and do and think be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord. We ask this in your name, amen. Um, as we uh, prepare to, to sing our next song, worship together is an opportunity where we take bread and wine. Uh, where We remember um, how we were brought into the family of God we actually get to taste and see and remember uh, Jesus' body broken for us in bread, his wine, uh, the wine representing his blood shed for us, the very act that broke down the walls of hostility, the very invitation that all of us have, no matter what color or creed uh, we belong to, that we get to be adopted into the family of God. And so as we worship, um, as we take bread and wine together, um, let's celebrate that good news of Jesus once again.